Hi, this is Joe Heschmeyer, author of Who Am I, Lord? You're listening to Pints with Jack. I go to the past to broaden my mind, not to confirm my homebred opinions. That's C.S. Lewis from an unpublished letter to Malcolm. Well, this is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 15, C.S. Lewis on Scripture, After Hours with Dr. Michael J. Christensen. Well, welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And today we're talking with a prominent figure in the world of Lewis studies who got his start by publishing a book that he had worked on in graduate school, I believe, and is, as far as I know, the only real full-on treatment of C.S. Lewis's view on scripture. The quotation uh, we dropped in comes from a, a fairly newly discovered letter, additional letter to Malcolm. And so we're going to be talking about Lewis and scripture and his views. They may get a little controversial, but I think there's space for all of us in the end. And today I'm joined by Dr. Michael J. Christensen. He's a historical theologian in training with an MA from Yale Divinity School, a PhD from Drew University, and a practical theologian by choice and temperament who taught spirituality and the practice of ministry at Drew for more than 20 years. A noted C.S. Lewis scholar and expert on the spiritual teachings of Henry Nouwen, his books include C.S. Lewis on Scripture, City Streets, City People, The Samaritan's Imperative, Equipping the Saints, Partakers of the Divine Nature, The Children of Chernobyl, and was a contributor to the C.S. Lewis Study Bible, and has edited volumes on the heart of Henry Nouwen, Spiritual Direction, Spiritual Formation, and Discernment by Henry Nouwen. He is the founding academic dean and professor of theology at Northwind Theological Seminary, where he directs doctoral programs in romantic theology, in which I am his grateful and humble student. He's a bit of a polymath, a minister, an accomplished academic, a scholar of particular enthusiasm and broad delight, and the founder of Northwind Seminary. His work dives deeply into C.S. Lewis, Henry Nouwen, and many others. He's a generous mentor and colleague, and it's a real long-awaited pleasure to say, Michael, welcome to Pints with Jack. Uh, thank you, Andrew. I think you and I first met at Drew University back in the day. I was uh, teaching there, and you came as a grad student, as I recall. I came as an undergrad student. Oh, my goodness. You were so young. Ah, yes. <laughs> the hair was much darker back then. Yeah, I had won a grant or, or something as an as an undergrad. By the time I got into my upper division studies at the University of California, Davis, I knew for sure I wanted to work on Lewis, and there was funding, and there was an Inklings conference at Drew, and that's where I met now my my sacerdotal colleague, Joel Scandrick. Oh, yes. I'm still in touch with him. He's a great Tolkien scholar these days. And yes. Now, was that the uh, Owen Barfield conference you came to, or was it a, a general Inklings conference we hosted? I think it was 98, and it was a general Inklings conference. And I remember at the banquet, uh, they invited people to dress up as their favorite characters, and somebody came as Peter Wimsey and Harriet Vane, and um, it was great fun. It was, I think, in the fall of the year, and uh, just a, yeah. a a wonderful experience. Well, I can still remember it. That's a long time ago, Andrew. Uh, you were younger. I was younger too. Yes, we were. <laughs> but we were there together, and uh, wow, I spent 22 years teaching at Drew University. Mm. And um, you said in the in the introduction that I'm the founder of Northwind. Just a slight um, correction there. I'm the founding dean. 
ah. of Northwind Seminary. Uh, Robert Duncan is our founder. And, you know, we've only, as you know, you were our first doctoral student to join. Uh-huh. And we've been around for three years at Northwind. Yes. It's a COVID startup. So um, yes. thank you for showing the way. Many have followed in your path. Well, the first uh, the first student and probably the last. Um, we'll see if we can do something <laughs> about that this year. Uh, I have great plans. And um, Rob Duncan very generously came last Wednesday night to my ordination. And uh, so I he arranged his schedule, and I know that his timeout is limited, but uh, I was grateful to see him there. So now we can properly call you the the most re- the, the the Reverend, the Reverend. Okay, the Reverend Andrew. Yes. Also, there's all kinds of qualifiers. Most Reverend is for the uh, the Archbishop or the presiding bishop, and Right Reverend is for a, a diocesan bishop or a, a suffragan bishop. Yeah. Father Lazo, Father Andrew is just fine. Father Andrew is so. fine. Okay, that's the new name. <laughs> and you just got back uh, from the Wade Center, right? Yeah, I was just, uh, I just got back just a couple days ago. I was at the Wade Center while you were at the uh, Mere Anglicanism Conference, I believe. We were yes. both doing Inklings together, but differently. Absolutely. And you met, you ran into some of my colleagues? Well, uh, Mary Ann was there. I sat right next to her. And, you know, we were talking about other things, and I don't know how you came up in the conversation, but you did. I guess Northwind prompted uh, Andrew Lazo. So she said, uh, she reminded me that uh, you were co-editors of Mere yes. Christians. Oh, my goodness. Mere Christians came out in 2009, I think. Yeah. And so, yeah, and she was a wonderful driving force on uh, on that project. and. Um, uh, just a real force of nature. One of several books that she's pu- pulled together. We were sitting together at the uh, at the annual lecture at the Wade Center. So, Professor Jeffrey um, Barbaro gave a lecture on the baptized imagination. Actually, he's, his title was "The Baptized Imagination Heresy." So romantic mm. heresy. He said, mm. <laughs> "Did you know there was a trial of C.S. Lewis at at Wheaton College in 1967?" I saw that in the notes, but I didn't know. Now, it wasn't a formal trial, right? It was not an actual trial. But C.S. Lewis was put on trial by some of the faculty at Wheaton in 1967 because why? Well, of course, Jack was a drinker and a smoker of pipes, cigarettes. And he was also uh, believed in theistic evolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, back in that time, you know, you couldn't teach at Wheaton in a, a firm evolutionary theory. But right. uh, there was one professor in particular who found Lewis's views of romanticism a slippery slope hmm. to heresy or um, heteroorthodoxy, heterodoxy. Yeah. So anyway, they put him on trial in the dialogues, and he was vindicated. And Clyde Kilby, who started the Wade Collection back in, sure. I guess, 65, um, he prevailed. And they continued collecting everything Lewis, everything Inklings, all seven uh, writers. So what a what a feast that was last week! Oh my goodness! Oh, and it was great to see my Northwind colleagues there and enjoying themselves. And I wish that I could have joined you. I have plans to go back to Wheaton. Um, there's they're doing a, a ballet, a local ballet company in in Illinois is doing a ballet on till we have faces. And I've done some consulting with them. Uh, Ballet Five Eight is is debuting Bareface soon, and oh, so I hope to combine my visit to the Wade Center with that with that debut. So, and Northwind goes back goes back to the Wade in the fall. We'll do a week at the Wade. Ah, uh, uh, good in October. So I hope you can join us there as well. I would love to. I uh, I like to tell people that if there really is a mansion in heaven, 
uh, one door opens to the kilns and one door opens to uh, wherever Diana Glyer is and one door opens to the Wade Center. And uh, Ooh, that's a, a long-standing home. Speaking of which, Andrew, I just have to get this in that Diana Glyer will be our host next month at Azusa yep. Pacific University. She will be giving Northwinders, friends mm-hmm. and students and faculty, uh, a personal tour of the Inklings collections at the University Library at uh, Azusa Pacific University. They Uh have a large collection, I guess, of Barfield family papers and Uh some other holdings. And we're doing a writer's conference there sponsored by the Southern California C.S. Lewis Society and Northwind Seminary on uh, how to write like an Oxford Inkling, Hmm. learning to read and write like an Inkling. Ah, and I know that that's a new class. Uh, Will that be open to the public? It is. It is. And then how can people get a hold of you? Just go on our website, northwindseminary.org. The conference is sponsored by Northwind Institute, our non-degree branch of Northwind Seminary. And uh, the link we can put right in the the chat here, but it's called the uh, Northwind Advance. Advances are not retreats, they're advances. And this advance as a writing advance is hosted by Diana, as I said, but also Terry Gillespie. Mm-hmm. And uh, James Prethro will also be doing workshops along with yours truly. My workshop is on how to distinguish academic writing from popular writing, how to write academies, mm-hmm. and how we can aspire to be a footnote. And that's do you, Andrew, do you aspire to be a footnote? And you're writing, or do you want to sell millions of copies of what you write? Not only do I aspire to be a footnote, um, Diana and I first met because I found myself listed in the works cited of the company they keep. And I scoured the pages to see where I was quoted and uh, couldn't find it. So I reached out to <laughs> Diana um, in disappointment. And uh, she said, oh, it didn't survive the final edit just for the flow of the text. But here's the paragraph. And so um, so I, I have been a footnote in Diana's book, even though the, the, the reference isn't there. Yeah. And, I, and you appear from time to time in footnotes as I read the Lewis literature. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be footnoted. You know, I mean, we want these big book sales and what we write and do, but it's a very gratifying thing just to be reading something and then look down and there you are, footnoted or someone you know <laughs> is footnoted. Remember when you sent me... A picture of uh, my book, C.S. Lewis on Scripture, on display at the Billy Graham Center? Absolutely. Yeah, I was visiting the Wade Center, and uh, we went to the Billy Graham Museum. And there in the case were a number of Billy's books right next to the pulpit where you can stand up and and preach like Billy. And I saw that it was your book. So I immediately, um, my wife jokes with me about being an extrovert, but I love connecting my friends. And so I immediately took a picture and sent it off to you. And so, yeah, Billy Graham read your book on Lewis. Yeah, that was so fun to see what he underlined. You know, you would think he would be looking and scanning for, you know, just the right quote from this great book. But you know what he underlined? I don't know if you remember or not, but he underlined Lewis's remark about belief in hell, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and how the gates of hell are locked from the inside. From the inside, yes. And then uh, to those who object to his doctrine of hell, he says, uh, they jokingly say, well, what do you do with mosquitoes? When If there's animals in heaven, if there's animal immortality, if animals make it to heaven, uh, what do you do with all the mosquitoes there? And he said, a heaven for mosquitoes and a hell for men can be very conveniently combined. Yes. Underline star. 
footnote, Billy Graham. I yep. love that. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if we ever use that in a talk. So. Oh, in a sermon, no doubt. <laughs> so uh, what are you drinking today as we come to this interview, Michael? Well, I, it's not bourbon or scotch or whiskey. I'm sorry, Andrew, I can't join you. That I'm just sipping on a, a nice uh, cup of, uh, of, of Arabica mm -hmm. uh, shade coffee from Uganda, grown by the farmers in Uganda that I personally know and have introduced their beans into a, into a roaster here. So I'm enjoying okay. uh, a nutty a nutty notes of uh, caramel and nutmeg. and It's a wonderful brew. Crusty roasted. Well, Kristen, kindly, I've been, uh, since I got back from the conference, I've been suffering from a head cold. And so Kristen lovingly made me a cup of peppermint tea, which I'm uh, enjoying, but um, I do have a small dram of whiskey. There you um, go. Here, some Kalila. So, uh, so I want to, we normally toast um, uh, a Patreon supporter, but I think that I'd like to toast the legacy of Clyde Kilby. Uh, so Dr. Kilby good. is in some ways the founder of Inkling Studies and the champion of Lewis and, and, his, and his circle here in America. And so to Clyde Kilby. To Clyde Kilby. Cheers. Cheers. Well, um, I'm sorry that we only have an hour. We could do a double episode, but um, but I want want you to introduce to your listeners a little bit about your book, uh, C.S. Lewis on Scripture, and tell us when you wrote it and why. Um, how did that come about? I wrote it as a young man, Andrew. I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at the back cover, you'll see kind of a senior high school picture of me on the back if you have an original edition. I wrote it as a young man in college uh, as an honors thesis in my literature program. I was attending Point Loma, Nazarene University, uh -huh. uh, English literature major, loving the romantic poets. And my, my professor of literature, my major professor was Professor Glenn Sadler. Uh -huh. Glenn Sadler is a literature professor, was an expert in um, George MacDonald and fairy tales. But he also came from Wheaton College. He was a professor there before he came to our college and he knew Clyde Kilby and he had a great interest in Lewis, and he offered a course called C.S. Lewis and His Circle. I took the course eagerly because mm. I'd been reading Lewis since high school. Uh -huh. And in that course, I discovered a, a firsthand knowledge of the Inklings. He knew Michael Williams. He knew some. He knew Warren Lewis. He, got a, he had books by, uh, autographed by C.S. Lewis. But Glenn Sadler inspired me. Hmm. And he became the chair of uh, my honors thesis that Clyde Kilby also weighed in on. And I got to know him and be encouraged by Clyde Kilby back in the day. And what came out of that year-long study was a manuscript on what C.S. Lewis thought about biblical inspiration, hmm. his view of reason and imagination, and the whole issue of inerrancy. And, and Andrew, this, is, this issue of inerrancy was back in the day when there was a battle for the Bible uh -huh. taking place in the late 1970s, early 80s. And there were people that were, that were really divided over the question, in what way is the Bible inspired? In what way is uh -huh. the Bible the authoritative word of God? Uh, how did God inspire? It's writing, and is it infallible and, and inerrant? And there were those on one side of the issue, like Francis Schaeffer, for example, who said we must affirm all the Bible says, even when it affirms matters of science and history, uh -huh. as inerrant. 
And those who cannot affirm biblical inerrancy should not properly call themselves evangelicals. We must mm. draw the line, he said, with love and tears. Mm-hmm. I, I was really influenced a lot by Schaefer in college, and I even went to Labrie and studied uh, with the group there. But when I read Lewis, he didn't have that sort of propositional, uh, literal view of Holy Writ. His was mm-hmm. much more of an imaginative embrace, a much more literary theory. And so I, I said, I've got to write. I've got to write what Lewis thought, even if it contradicts what Francis Schaeffer and others think mm-hmm. about the inerrancy. And I was an evangelical. I was, you know, um, growing up in this church, and it, it mattered to me and my tribe. Yeah. So I, I wrote the book, and, and uh, Clive Kilby encouraged me to send it in to a book publisher to see if they might want to publish it during the, Bible, mm-hmm. the rage over the Bible. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, word books back in the day, word books picked it up and it sold uh, 30,000 copies in, in the first couple of years. It was, it had, of 11 books I've written, it still is my bestseller <laughs> after all ah, these that's years. That's great. Amazing. So thanks for that great introduction to the book. And so we're going to just briefly touch on the chapters. And I want to establish, I know that it's still a fairly controversial and divisive issue, this issue of inerrancy and inspiration. Is there still place for the extremes of uh, within Christianity? Is there still a place for somebody to believe in the inspiration of the, uh, uh, of the Holy Scriptures? I sometimes wonder why it's still such a big issue. Why weren't, why weren't some of these issues settled long ago among the churches and denominations? But it's still, it's still maybe not a battle mm-hmm. for the Bible, but there are people that line up on either side. So, you know, the the so-called progressive wing of the church, liberal progressive wing, are inclined to say that the Bible is simply, or maybe not simply, but complicatedly, uh, a library of human experience about God. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it, it speaks to us morally and ethically and spiritually, but we must not be guilty of bibliolatry. And we we don't worship the Bible, and let's just recognize it as a human book that speaks to us when God mm-hmm. um, enlightens our hearts. On the other extreme would be the literalist, right, who say who say the Bible is not really dictated by God, but everything in there is verbally inspired and in a literal way, unless it's an obvious figure to, figure of speech. But we take it as literally as the authors intended. Mm-hmm. We don't contradict it with science and history and and critical reasoning and higher criticism is to be avoided. So you have a you have a, a left and a right wing. Mm-hmm. And Lewis, being an Anglo Catholic that he was, you know, he wants to find that middle way, that middle ground, even risking offending his American evangelical audience sometimes, and mm-hmm. certainly offending the liberal progressive side in his own church. He was an equal opportunity offender. Equal opportunity offender. If he had to err one side or the other, though, I think he would err toward the evangelical side of things mm-hmm. because he said, all my books are, ev- are evangelistic. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 was more, he, he liked to nuance the difference between an evangelical faith of one who wants to share the good news as, a, as an apologist and mm-hmm. the fundamentalist who he says, that is not for me. I can't go down that road of fundamentalist. He says to Malcolm and everybody else, I'm not a fundamentalist, but neither mm-hmm. am I 
a liberal clergyman who ends up in hell and has to give a theological seminar on the tragedy of of Jesus dying at the young age of 33 before he could mature in his faith and give us a more enlightened view of God. Yeah. I remember a a friend of mine relating uh, that while they were in seminary, they heard a professor talking about how Jesus needed to be corrected by the Syrophoenician woman uh, because even Jesus needed correction from a woman of color. And um, I think that kind of presuppositionalism on both sides. Yeah. Um, and I went to the Moody Bible Institute. You know, one of the fundamentals of the faith is the verbal plenary inspiration of the original autographs. I want to clarify, you know, if it's not clear, that as a still, you know, I still consider myself evangelical and, you know, can't argue with most of the fundamentals in the small f sense, not the cultural phenomenon necessarily. But the idea that God could do this, I think, is a tenable idea. And I think that good-hearted Christians can certainly disagree, and certainly biblical criticism it goes in a, in a different direction. Um, we do know, however, that God was speaking, that yeah. our Lord came as the Word, and our Lord came in intending to be the communication from God. It also helped me to understand the debates when I put them in a historical context, that for years tradition had had these accretions that led to the Council of Trent, right? Led to Reformation in the Roman Catholic Church, long needed Reformation. And that also led to the Protestant Reformation. And I think that in some ways, um, the, the Protestants veered towards only the scriptures. And that can be a safer ground than, than uh, piling men's traditions uh, upon each other, like we saw with the Pharisees. And so to see, uh, to see these debates within the context of history, this overemphasis on tradition, and then this overemphasis on the scripture, and to find, try to find a middle ground, uh, I think is, is helpful. That's why you're Episcopalian, isn't it? Trying to find that middle ground. Is that what brings you to the church? <laughs> my my rector says that as an Episcopalian, I can be as Catholic as I want to be and as uh, evangelical as I want to be and as charismatic as I want to be. <laughs> I have certainly found a good home. The best of all worlds. Now, I'm, I'm still a United Methodist. I was you know, raised in the Church of the Nazarene in a more evangelical and more conservative faith, but I, I, I needed a little bit more theological elbow room and migrated over to the Methodist side of things. Mm-hmm. But what I like about John Wesley in the Methodist way, the method of the Methodist, is that we have what we call the quadrilateral. And this quadrilateral says that we try to keep in balance tradition and scripture, mm-hmm. the inner witness of our faith, of the spirit prompting us within, and reason. So reason, scripture, tradition, experience together form the quadrilateral that we use as a, almost like a relative to each other compass yep. guiding us uh, to through interpretation. So it's a very satisfying approach for me. So it adds that inner experience to the, to the famed uh, three-legged stool. of Exactly. Hooker. Yeah. John Wesley had that warm heart experience, so he had to add the experience to the, to the, to the stool. And I'm glad he did. Well, and while I don't want to 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 spark any kind of um, you know dissension or dismay amongst our listeners, um, I want to, uh, in looking at some of these issues, um, I think it's important to use on Lewis 
the same tool that he used on Freud. So in Mere Christianity, he talks about um, Freud being a, a, a fine expert in this in the study of psychology, but not uh, not all that well informed when he does literary criticism, um, for example. And um, I think here's where Lewis certainly shows his stripes as an amateur theologian, perhaps. He's engaging in some of these issues and holding opinions, and he's an, you know, an incredibly intelligent man whose opinions I treasure. I'm not sure that I would necessarily stand with him on, uh, on some of what he says. And I, one also wonders what would happen if he had 10 more years. And so it'd be great fun to, uh, to be at the Eagle and Child and to start uh, having some of these debates. So tell us a little bit about biblical literary criticism and what that's all about. Can you give us just a quick thumbnail sketch for folks who aren't, uh, aren't really uh, versed in that? Well, there's you know, two kinds of criticism. They call the higher critic and the, the more textual critic. The textual critic wants to learn the meanings of the words. It wants to do the hard study, get your concordance out, do the word studies that cast light on what the author intended. Uh, reference things back and forth, put it in context, all the uh-huh. stuff that we do well when we give a careful reading uh, to a text, any text, scripture or otherwise. You want to actually see what is there. You don't want uh-huh. to project onto a text, a poem, a story, or a Bible verse, something that is not really there, that reflects your own subjectivity or what I, you know, what I imagine it says. Or some literary, some uh, political theory or sociological theory. You don't want to impose that on the text. Be a good reader, Lewis says. Mm-hmm. Uh, let the text speak to you in a way that you see with other eyes, broaden your own horizons, and do the hard work of looking up those words you mm. just don't understand. So that's that's textual criticism. But there's a, there's yeah. a go ahead. There's another higher. Form. Sure, so sure. Cool. And, and Lewis was, was very clear about defining and describing, and let's find out exactly what we're doing before we start arguing about things. And more often than not, in our efforts to define and describe the issue, um, we may find that there's less disagreement than, than we may have thought. Bruce Edwards, uh, I think it was, was quoted when the Narnia movies came out. Um, about allegory and metaphor in Narnia. And he said, the key thing with Lewis and just about everywhere else is to read the lines before you read between the lines. <laughs> Perfect. And Perfect. I think that for, for most of us and for most of our listeners who are, who are Christians and not specializing in such things, I think that accessing um, the, the incredible tools, interlinear Bibles and concordances and all sorts of, of, of uh, material, especially online, um, olive tree and all of those, I think that for most of our, our listeners, just really digging in and understanding the Bible will take up most of their time. And I think that you'd agree that it's the vast minority of people, of Christians and even academics who concern themselves with such things. And of course, we you also have to read between the lines at some point. We, we mm-hmm. start with the lines themselves, mm-hmm. but then with that creative imagination, with the baptized imagination, we can, off, we can say to the text, I wonder what, I wonder what is going on in the author and in the reader between the lines. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it, you don't start there, but when you let the images speak and you let uh, the, the text uh, interpret you, <laughs> right? right? Standing up right. below the text, not over and above it, things bubble up because the mm-hmm. spirit continues to bear witness to God's living word and point to Jesus. 
Well, and Lewis's point in Experiment and Criticism that we should surrender ourselves to the work, to the literary work. And I think he's not even talking about the, the, the biblical text. And we should receive it rather than, than use it. I think is all the more uh, important advice with the scriptures, which however, wherever you come out is, is clearly uh, understood by all Christians as being authored by God in some sense, um, uh, in, in, in crucial sense. Well, Lewis, he certainly believed that, that, that the Lord, the Spirit of God, prompted and pushed and pressured, um, you know, poets and prophets, writers, and, and sort of super, uh, supernaturally even superintended the process from mm-hmm. inspiration to its written form to the genres chosen to the di- redactions that needed to take place from, from, uh, from text to canon. The canonization process, the whole process, which is long, over a long period of time, Lewis believed was superintended uh, yes. by the Spirit, not in any literal, verbal, you know, brittle, brittle way, but in a dynamic way that brings us uh, the Word of God today. He wasn't even bothered what what the prehistory of a text was either. You know, he was he was more interested in how the Scripture comes to us and mm-hmm. is presented to our senses that we can then. Uh, be steeped in. We steep ourselves uh, yeah. in the words of Scripture. Well, and that was a real encouraging thing for me um, in seminary. Even though VTS is uh, in some ways fairly progressive, uh, when we talked about the canonization of Scripture, uh, the best theologians are all agreed that it wasn't some secret secret council deciding which books are in and which books you know they agreed with and empowered them. It was the Holy Spirit throughout the Christian world at that time, really moving faithful men and women to say, these are the books that we hear God through clearly. And so this, this canonization process was a coalescing, as you said, over, over a number of years. But it really, I think, bears all the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. And what distinguishes Lewis's approach, back to literary criticism, uh-huh. as a literary critic, he wants to approach the Holy Scriptures in the same way he approaches all good literature, which mm-hmm. is look at the genre. Genre counts. And this is, yep. this is something that sometimes the philosophers, the theologians, the sociologists miss. He wants mm-hmm. poetry to be read as poetry. He wants proverbs right. to be proverbs. Let the stories be stories. Let myth be myth. Find out what the genre is and let that be a hermeneutical key to how we interpret what God is saying through that particular genre. And he does the best of that, of, of all the critics out there. Oh, without question. And I think that one of the real uh, real favors he does for believing Christians is when he looks at the Gospels and he reads them as an expert in ancient texts. And he said, these are, these are not myths. These are not fairy tales. These are eyewitness and factual accounts that you're getting from people who really saw it and wrote down as accurately as you could. One of the knocks that fundamentalists get, and it's it's a tragedy because because it's completely undeserved. Um, I too often hear fundamentalists dismissed as people who are biblical literalists everywhere. And um, that's not what I learned even at a fundamentalist school like the Moody Bible Institute. When a text is relating history, like the book of Chronicles or Kings, or like the Gospels, you take them literally. 
when they are being highly figurative, like the book of Hebrews or Revelation, you take the figurativeness of it, or Proverbs or Psalms. I don't know any fundamentalist who, when the Psalms say that God will protect us with his feathers and his wings, then believe that God's a chicken, um, for example. And I think that Lewis is very skilled at saying, let's take these, and the Gospels certainly seem to be factual eyewitness account that bear witness to the resurrection. Yeah. And I stand right next to him um, on that. He, no, he did. He viewed the, the, the gospel text as fairly reliable history. I mean, they're not myth. They're not allegorical. They're not romance literature. Mm-hmm. They have some elements of poetry and whatever, but they're, they're, they're reliable sources of what happened when Jesus walked the earth. He contrasts Gospels, though, as you recall, with, uh, let's say, the story of, of Jonah and mm-hmm. Nineveh and the, and the big whale-like monster, mm-hmm. Leviathan. He says, when I read the, the whale story, the, the Jonah story, uh, it, it reads like romance to me. Mm-hmm. It, it, he doesn't want to put that into a historical genre. He wants to let that speak as story that maybe ha- maybe has a, a deeper allegorical meaning or a mythical meaning as well. So he wants to really pay attention to the genre. Again, yes. it's, it's back to plain, the plain meaning of scripture. When, you know, our founder, John Wesley, he says, read the text as plain text, what, which is sometimes plain text is symbolic and sometimes plain text is uh, chron- chronology or chronicle. Mm-hmm. And, and they're both plain because it's plainly seen that Jesus is talking about a mother hen with her chicks. You know, right. and Jesus is not a mother hen, but the plain text is he's brooding and gathering yes. and, and weeping over Jerusalem. So let the scripture speak. Exactly. And um, part of why I love Lewis so much is, especially towards the end of his life. Oh, by the way, I need to warn you that uh, every time I mention Till We Have Faces, we all drink on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, cheers. And the time is coming. When he turns to the Narnia Chronicles, and in particular to Till We Have Faces, he's doing what he calls indirect theology. And I see his mission much like our Lord's, who, according to St. Matthew, did not open his mouth without speaking a parable, so that seeing they would not see and hearing they would not hear, right? It's the glory of God to hide a matter and the glory of, of, of humans to, to find it out. And so I certainly see that there's some of that aspect um, in our Lord's parables. And that's similar, I think, to what Lewis is doing uh, with Narnia and other fiction, yeah. like his very best book. <laughs> Very best. He does co- the scripture codes things sometimes. We have to crack the code. And with Lewis, too, you have to crack the code sometimes because things are indirect and uh, sometimes subliminal and sometimes hidden between the lines. So it's a great adventure story to oh, be great. a scriptural critic. So in thinking about um, what, your last chapter, Treasure in Earthen Vessels, how should we read the Bible these days? And is there space for all of us? You know the scripture verse that says we have this treasure in earthen vessels mm-hmm. to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. So in that passage from Paul, there's a distinction to be made between the treasure and the earthen vessels. Mm-hmm. So the treasure we have is a gold mine of, uh, of truth, of beauty, of divine revelation of wisdom and word. It's Mm -hmm. a treasure to be cherished. But that treasure that comes to us almost like a 
uh, a data stream from the heart of God. I mean, God is always trying to speak to us in many, many ways through good dreams and myths and sacred history and mm-hmm. scripture and personal experience and prophets and teachers. I mean, all the ways God is trying to get through to us a message yes. comes yes. through a transposition. Lewis's word, mm-hmm. trans. We, we lose something is lost in the translation because it's coming from a very high place of divine revelation to a earthen mm-hmm. vessel that's human and flawed and finite. Mm-hmm. And so we must not mis- mistake the treasure for the vessels, nor fail to find the treasure in mm-hmm. the vessels. Yes. And this is yes. the heart of his literary view of, of inspiration and inerrancy. The Bible is human literature, true enough, flawed, limited, transpositions necessary to, because human language is limited. Mm-hmm. So God takes this human medium and Lewis says in Reflections on the Psalms, he says, and God raises up this literature, this human literature, above mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. to become a vehicle of God's word. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that God swooped down and brought up a, you know, a, a, a people, mm-hmm. Israel and us, and, and raises us up to be priests and immortal spirits we are the same way god raises a literature up so uh, the scripture conveys the word of god because god has brought a scripture and raised it above itself i i I wish i could quote it (laughs) i wish i could say it as well as lewis says it and i can't you'll have to read it it's in my book (laughs) i think he says somewhere maybe even in mere christianity that the bible is a step away from the direct experience of god but nevertheless, it is the closest thing that we have, especially in you know in 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 human writing, and it's got it's got God's hands all over it. The fingerprints are the divine fingerprints are all over it. But the, there is a message, and there is a medium, and the medium is different than the message. But the message has to come through a medium, and this it is the one God chose. This is the one our Lord chose. We might have wished it was something different. But God knows what's best and has determined that this is best. Well, and I just got thunked on the head last Wednesday night uh, by the bishop with a Bible um, and uh, and swore that I hold to the Old and New Testament scriptures as uh, as the, the true word of God. And there's plenty of space for, for that, you know, wherever we stand on some of these debates. And, and I think that we can also kind of look at Lewis's own patterns and habits, his Bible, his Greek Greek Testament were, I think, heavily underlined. I haven't ever seen it. It's at the Wade Center. But Lewis was a committed and regular reader of the Bible um, all the days of his life. And you can hear all of that stuff inspiring him and leaking out into all of his writings. And so his own re- high regard for the scripture, I think, is is imitable. I wish I read the Bible as much as yeah. he did. I was there last week, as you know, and I, I, I checked out his Bibles, and he had a big, old, you know, 19th century family-style Bible. I think he bought it mm-hmm. from an old bookstore or something, but he has the old Bible there. And then he has a newer Bible that he, you know, mm-hmm. can see where he where he was blessed and enlightened. He had a Moffat New Testament modern mm-hmm. translation Bible, yep. and then he had his Greek and Hebrew versions. That could be, uh, he was one who was not 
confined to one particular translation or version. He wanted to check and balance and, uh, and let, the, let the word speak in many, many ways that the medium would lead him. And yeah. so uh, I, I love watching. I love looking at his books. I mean, yeah. he's got 2,400 volumes there. As oh my you know, goodness! Yes, you can't. I do. You, know, you take them one at a time on the pillow, and beautifully lip, look through what his margins say, and what he yeah. underlined, and what he puts in the index in the back. Such a treasure! It's a beautiful thing. And scripture was a big part of his reading. We must not say that Lewis did not uh, high, have a high view of scripture, as some have said. Some yeah. have faulted him for not having a high enough view of scripture, and some have faulted him for too high a view of scripture. And so when you asked, is there room for all of us in this, um, in this world of the Christian world, I think Lewis would say, if you're being criticized for having too low a view and you're being criticized for having too high a view of divine inspiration, then there is plenty good room for finding that middle path and not being uh, judgmental about those who fail to see it exactly the way you uh, read it. Yeah. Well, and he was um, he was friends, close friends with J. B. Phillips, and wrote the introduction to Phillips' translation of the uh, of the New Testament epistles. And I'm sure David will hunt this out for me. Um, it's been republished. Uh, I think it's on the. It's not on the reading of old books, but it's I think it's something like on modern translation. And Lewis was a fan of translation and believed that it should be done and done well. Well, before we wrap up, there's a, a. I'd like to get to the thing that I teased at the beginning. What can you tell us about this lost letter to Malcolm without violating any copyright? <laughs> I'm glad you quoted from it at the beginning. There is in existence this uh, omitted chapter of letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer. And this omitted chapter is really letter um, 12, 12, right? a, 12 A, to be exact. That for some reason, and we do not know why, you know whose um, whose idea it was to leave it out, but he had to uh, he had to write another chapter to make it an even twenty two mm-hmm. letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, taking out the original twelve. Uh-huh. And so uh, you know, scholars have uh, wondered what what's in this letter and why it was left out, and there's kind of a detective story to uh, to tell about it. But I think at least four scholars have seen the handwritten letter and transcribed mm-hmm. it. I, I among them, but I'm not the only one who has seen it and transcribed it and then sent it to Charlie Starr yes. to correct your translation or your trans, yes. you know, your transcription. transcription. Yeah. But I, I do want to thank you, Andrew, because you were the one who put me on the trail to Charlie Starr. And having introduced me to Charlie Starr, who you hinted at may have an idea about this lost letter to Malcolm, I, 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 I pursued it and I too found it. And then finally in 2017, it was published in seven mm-hmm. at the Wade Center. And I'm, I'm anxious to, uh, to offer my theological interpretation of it because I think it's highly significant that in this lost letter to Malcolm, chiefly on scripture, he is definitive about a number of things, and I won't want to spoil the the reading of what we come up with later on, but he's definitive about not being a fundamentalist. Uh-huh. He's definitive about not being a literalist or an inerrantist. He doesn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the way that word is used. Uh-huh. 
And this is shocking to me, maybe shocking to you and others. He doesn't believe in this letter. He does not affirm sola scriptura, scripture mm, only. Uh-huh. He, he says in very clear terms that God, the divine revelation comes to us as a data stream uh-huh. in various medium uh-huh. and media. And that scripture is one of the datum in the data. Uh-huh. And we should have as much data as we can in our theology. So take this and try to reconcile it with this. But don't believe for one minute that the scripture is the only datum uh-huh. in the data that is descending to us from God. That word data, we think of computer bits of information these days. But Lewis used it in the old classical sense of gift. Yeah, Data is a gift. Yes. And a datum is a piece of a gift, singular form. And scripture is a gift to us, but it's not the only gift. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful thing, he says. I, it needs to be unpacked. I'm unpacking it now. Yep. And um, I'm glad you asked about it. Uh, stay tuned for yes. Lost Letter of Malcolm, found and trying to yep. explain. So, and that's been <laughs> published, and so people can go, and they can fight with Lewis. And that's, I think, one of the great things. I mean, there's so much that I love and agree with about Lewis, but there are things where I would hold different opinions. And 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 I think that he would welcome that. In fact, he called himself a man hungry for rational opposition and um, was always looking in his students uh, to for them to oppose him and to hold a ground and to uh, and to win an argument. And he gladly conceded uh, when he lost. So it's uh, I'm holding in my hand the Journal of the Marion E. Wade Center, volume 34, 34. 2017 of seven. So if you if you want to see what he if you want to see the transcription as typeset and published, it's here in volume 34, 2017. And there'll be other articles coming out about this lost letter because I I think it's highly significant. And Lord willing, pray with me, Andrew. It'll find its way into chapter seven, Mm. uh, a new chapter that I'll be writing about my uh, book, C.S. Lewis on Scripture. I'm revising it. I'm enlarging it. It's going to be an expanded version with uh, a new chapter on the lost letter uh, to Malcolm. It'll be my final chapter, chapter seven of what is now only six chapters in C.S. Lewis on Scripture. Well, I think seven is a very completed number. And so I, I salute that and I look forward to uh, to seeing that progress. I did find out um, through a quick search as we were chatting, the essay was the, the, the introduction to J.B. Phillips' translation, um, modern translation of the epistles, was published in 1970 in God in the Dock in America and Undeceptions in England as Modern Translations of the Bible. And that's certainly worth uh, worth some looking at. Maybe we'll go on to a lesser-known Lewis and uh, another podcast devoted to Lewis's essays and, and, uh, and, and chat about that. Wonderful. Well, what a great visit with you, friend. Um, it's always a delight for me to speak with you. How can folks find you if they're interested in your book, if they're interested, as I highly recommend, in Northwind Seminary? Um, where can we find you? If they want my books, I, I have a number of them on Amazon. The easiest way is go to Amazon and look at Michael J. Christensen. You'll see books for sale through Amazon. If you want C.S. Lewis on Scripture directly from the publisher, Abington Books is the publisher of the paperback version, still in print after all these years. Hmm. Uh, There'll be a new revision 
out soon, but for now, it's right there on Amazon or Abingdon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope they'll find me and us and you at northwindseminary.org, especially if they're interested in, rom- in studying romantic theology with Charlie Starr and Dinah Glyer and Michael Christensen and Terry Gillespie and Crystal Hurd and Andrew Lazo. Malcolm Geit and all the rest. Malcolm Geit and Michael Ward. They're all either faculty or distinguished lecturers, as you are, Andrew, in the program that you are also taking. (laughs) So find us at northwindseminary.org. Bio's there, um, blog is there, and Romantic Theology Program uh, for our listeners, I think would be a very interesting um, program if you need a a degree or want to just study for the pure love of lifelong learning. So there are diploma or non-degree programs and master's programs and doctoral programs available there. Certificate programs and degree programs, all on Inkling Studies. Wonderful. Well, what a joy to have you on, my friend, as a guest. Thanks again to Michael J. Christensen for coming on the show. I'd like to thank also all of our listeners, our Patreon supporters, uh, particularly our top-tier supporters, without whom... So, and that, of course, includes Matt and Jake, James and Erica, Marvin, Joel and Deborah, Amanda and Thomas, Bill, Bud and Shane, Kay and Paul, Kimberly and Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt and Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter and David and Angela and Rowdy. And we pray for our listeners and for all the prayer requests uh, regularly uh, that appear on our Slack channel. We pray for those um, on every Tuesday. I personally have the Pints with Jack folks and the project in my daily prayers. If you've enjoyed this episode, please write us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. And uh, please then join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.